Hi, and welcome back to Women Rule. I'm Carrie Budoff-Brown, editor of Politico. So it's the week after Thanksgiving. I think we're all just starting to feel not stuffed, right? So I thought, what better time to discuss a topic that's very much on people's minds? It's the holiday season. We're all thinking about food, right? I mean, I know I am. I think about food all the time. I'm thinking about food right now. I want to know what I'm going to eat for dinner. And so I thought, well, why don't I just bring together our agriculture team? Who, First of all, what media organizations have agriculture teams these days? Well, Politico does. And we have an amazing group of women, all women, who cover agriculture for us. And I thought I'd bring together three of them to just hash it all out. Um, So today I have Helena Bonamiller-Evich, Jenny Hopkinson, and Catherine Boudreaux. We had, I thought it was a pretty interesting discussion about really the the role of women and sort of the lack of women uh, representation in the agriculture industry and what kind of effect that has on things that may seem obscure to a lot of us, what the the Farm Bureau, their policy handbook, what happens when you have 100 delegates in a room and only one is a woman. Catherine talks to us about that. And Jenny and Helena brought us in on what it's like to have, you know, the first lady, former and now current first lady, diving in on these issues of food policy and and Jenny talking about farmers, the fact that there are so few women um, and what impact that has on the long-term health of the industry. So please stick around for the conversation. I promise you'll leave hungry. On the Women Rule podcast, we'll be bringing you backstage with women leaders, the big bosses in politics and policy. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at Brown. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now a word from our presenting sponsor, Chevron. When more girls go into science, technology, engineering, and math, the whole world benefits. With the support of families, schools, policymakers, and businesses, girls can do remarkable things with STEM. Chevron is proud to join Women Rule in empowering the next generation of female leaders. And now our talk with Politico Agriculture reporters Helena Bonamiller-Evich, Jenny Hopkinson, and Catherine Boudreaux. So, you know, I wanted to start, as, as our Women Rule audience knows, we, we often dive into to topics and areas where, and I ask questions of women, um, particularly to, to sort of dive into that juxtaposition or that contrast between uh, sort of the roles that women have and sort of the places and the people they cover. Um, and in the case of agriculture, this is a really notoriously male-dominated industry, right? You know, Helena, tell me like one story when you were as an agriculture reporter, sitting somewhere where you were just like, holy crap, I am the only woman in the room. Well, it happens all the time, (laughs) actually. I mean, it doesn't happen as much now as it used to. But Mm. when I got to Washington and started covering food policy eight and a half years ago, I remember going to my first Senate Agriculture Committee hearing and sitting down at the press table, and it was me and a bunch of, like, 60-plus-year-old white guys. Yep. And they were like, what are you <laughs> doing here? I mean, they didn't say anything. They were very uh-huh. welcoming, but it was just this feeling of, like, one of us is different <laughs> than the other. You know, I'm, like, you know, in my early 20s, uh-huh. like, bopping about, like, you know, 
It's my first uh, covering my first hearing. And um, it was just very apparent that I was a much younger than everyone and also the only woman at the table. So how did you how did you deal with that? I mean, what did it mean for you both as a reporter and then just like as a woman sitting there? Like what impressions did that leave on leave on you? And how did you how did that change how you did your job? Uh, Well, I think I tried to ignore it and just Mm -hmm. operate, you know, as I as I would in any other situation. And I, I could definitely tell that it took some time to kind of earn everyone's respect. And I don't know that that was necessarily completely a function of me being uh, female as much as it was me being new and to young, right? agriculture. Yeah, I was really young. So mm-hmm. being taken seriously just um, – it took a while. It took a while so kind of proving do? myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I beat them. at mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I tried to get things first or, um, you know, you wanted to write stories that – your colleagues and your competitors would look at whether they were male or female and say, oh, I wish I had had mm-hmm. that. So I think so that's, good. yeah. But I don't, I don't, I feel like I've earned my, my respect now. But now, I mean, still, when we go to events, it's really common for it to be very male-dominated, much more on the agriculture side than the food industry side. It is, frankly, a lot of older white men. Um, and I remember my first, USDA does this big kind of economics conference uh, in the winter called Outlook. And I remember the first time I was there, I walk into this, you know, side room at this hotel in Crystal City. And and it's, you know, the Secretary of Agriculture and the the kind of press corps that's all flown in from the Midwest. And I am literally reducing the average age by like 20 years and it's me and then I realized eventually one other woman but I think a big key part of it in a situation like that was was asking the better question like people started to respect you and realized very quickly um that first of all I wasn't going to be elbowed out of the way um also I'm more limber <laughs> again the age difference um I can I can jump over a chair much faster than you sir um but but just kind of asking the question that really got to the heart of the issue and that conference happens every year and I always go to that same press conference and I don't know if the the balance has changed so talk to me about you know having where we started out this this sort of this line of questioning the, the limited number of or few women who are in the agriculture sort of industry what what is the impact? Like, do you have any stories or or examples of seeing few women in the room and, and how that might have impacted how a decision was made? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think one of the clearest examples is when I was at the Farm Bureau, the American Farm Bureau Federation annual convention. And they were, this was in Phoenix. This was the beginning of the year. They did this every year. But they have to um, vote on their policy handbook, all the policies for the year. And there's a certain number of voting delegates from each state. And what's in a policy handbook? It's like everything. It's very random. I mean, there's, you would think it would just be on agriculture issues, Mm -hmm. but they also vote on social issues. Mm -hmm. It's Uh, like their official policies. It's it's their agenda for the year. Yeah, basically. The policies they'll lobby on, right? Yeah, yeah. Policies they'll lobby on, things they support. I mean, they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily lobby on the Confederate flag, but that happened to be in the policy handbook that they supported. So this is like, so this is a, this is a document that basically decides what they're going to do for the year. Yeah, it says their agenda and what they support, what they back and Mm -hmm. makes, you know, each year they make changes, very small changes to it, I would say, because it's a large book of policy, like, Mm -hmm. you know. More than 100 pages. Okay. Um, so this there's this room. I'm in the room where they vote on each policy, uh, the room of voting delegates. And every person in the room is 
pretty much a man. And I see like a lone blonde woman over in the left-hand corner, Mm -hmm. a room full of um, definitely more than 100 people because every state has more than one delegate, I I would imagine. So, um, but in the entire room, there's like maybe one, two, three women. Uh, So afterwards, I ran up to one. I was like, I have to talk to you. Like, you're one (laughs) of the only women here voting on some of these policies that the Farm Bureau will be advocating for. And, you know, she really, I don't know if she was, uncomfortable with the press and maybe that's why she was hesitant Mm -hmm. to talk but she also really didn't think much about it I didn't think she was like oh yeah you're right you know it it was it was interesting I just maybe because that's how things have been and the way things have always been probably in the rooms that she's been in right yeah always been predominantly men and so it's not well I was at a meeting off-site and I was surprised that I was the only woman in the room and that is so unusual for me because there's so many women here when I was sitting in that room with all men, it was actually very weird to me. I was like, this is really odd that I'm in this room with all men and I'm the only woman. And this is actually very, very normal until like you're at a place where there's a lot of women. Do you notice what it's like to be the only woman mm-hmm. in yeah. the room? 100%. Or even just 50-50-ish, like where yeah. the leadership yeah. feels balanced. Yeah. Like yeah. I have a friend who works in Silicon Valley and it's so the leadership of those organizations is so lopsided. And so so I'd hear her talk about this and I'd be like, you need to come to DC. There's so many organizations that have either more balanced or are women led. And like, it's so much a product, how you think about that is so much a product of what you're experiencing every day and what becomes normal. What becomes normal. So, so for your delegate, the delegate probably, she's always to our point, right? She's always been in rooms with mostly men. And Mm -hmm. so to be the only woman, that's just a normal existence yeah. and but, i can't help but think what yeah. that handbook would look like if there was more women right. representing the farm bureau um but it's just historically been men do you did so. you, were you did you sit there and think of anything like off or off the top of your head right now that you think could be different or can you well i don't want to yeah. butt in on this but go i do for kind it. Of, go ahead Jenny. so i mean one of the big things that we're one of the big problems that we're having in agriculture is like the average age of a farmer is just getting older they're all either very close to retirement age or just below it. Um, and so there is both this question of who takes over this farm, these farms and how do we bring new people into agriculture? I mean, kids who are growing up on the farm are leaving the farm because they want to live in the city and they want to go into a tech job and where at least in, under the past administration kind of leadership at USDA put a lot of emphasis on bringing new people into agriculture, recognizing that there's only so many people in rural America and who is going to produce our food in the future. But the image of the farmer is this old white man, effectively. If that's your image, if you are a young woman, um, kind of a, a young Hispanic woman, a young anything, like there is no example for you in agriculture, it's this image that agriculture is not a place for you, either as a woman or as a minority. I mean, I mean, there are some kind of historical problems at USDA and issues with with discrimination that like did play into that. But I think, again, especially at at leader or for leadership um, at USDA in the last administration, it was just a conscious effort that if if agriculture is perceived as this place for just old white men, then other people, including women, um, won't get involved in it. And they won't kind of bring new ideas and new perspective and you know, new technologies and things with them, you'll just have food produced the way it's always been produced. And that doesn't necessarily help us going forward with growing populations and kind of reduced land um, and kind of meeting the needs going forward. Is the USDA continue? What were the efforts of the previous administration in this respect briefly? And then 
Do you see any of that continuing yeah, in, so, in this administration? So former Secretary Vilsack, um, who served as the head of USDA for the entire eight years of the Obama administration, kind of made a very clear and conscientious effort to put women in leadership positions. Uh, his deputy secretary um, was, until the very end when kind of there was just someone acting in that position, was a woman. He had two kind of very strong women in that position. And this was, in fact, started by some of those women in leadership, but there was an effort on local farmers, regional food, so small hold farms um, that kind of sell directly to consumers at farmer's market or through other ventures. Um, and so kind of diversifying farming. Um, I, I'm i not sure how much of that was institutionalized, at least on the women part. I mean, I know on the local farms part that was institutionalized. Um, the effort called Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food, um, and that – when it was set up, it was deliberately not given an office, but it was kind of spread across a lot of different areas to kind of institutionalize it and say, like, we don't have specific funding just for this. It comes out of your ag marketing budget or your this budget. So to kind of make it, it harder. To, yeah, you some can't people just, got like upset yeah. about it, thinking that it was attacking agriculture. Yeah. Um, and that was a brainchild of Kathleen Merrigan, who's Who, now at George Washington University. Yeah, she was Vilsack's first deputy secretary. We'll be right back with more Women Rule, but first, a word from our presenting sponsor, Chevron. When more girls go into science, technology, engineering, and math, the whole world benefits. With the support of families, schools, policymakers, and businesses, girls can do remarkable things with STEM. Chevron is proud to join Women Rule in empowering the next generation of female leaders. And what effect did that have in terms of bringing more diversified voices into the... Well, USDA's efforts have been mostly targeted at women. And the reason for that is most farmers have a wife. You know, it's, it's an easy... It's an easy audience in a lot of ways. Um, you know, based on the statistics, we don't have many people of minorities in farming, but we do have men who have daughters or have wives. And so there, there is kind of a built-in audience for it. Um, and so it, it's a good question on what effect it has. I mean, USDA does a big ag census every five years. And so the next one will be very interesting. I think they're collecting we'll be data for, for that. it yeah, now. Yeah, to see if the number of women involved yeah. or who are the primary operator or mm. has yeah. gone up at all. What is that percentage now, the last sentence, census? Oh, I it was... It was low, low, but I will say there are a lot of questions in that data because the census asks for, you know, who is the farmer. And so even if, you know, it's a man and his wife that split the duties relatively evenly, it would be the man that fills it out. So so I also think in the next census, there's there's some effort to change how that question is asked mm-hmm. um, and to kind of ask, you know, who is actively involved on the farm and, yeah, and what that no looks like. Yeah, there's no question that the, most farms in this country are family farms so yeah. you know maybe the the husband has is the primary operator but the family is doing a lot of the work yeah i think with the current the administration family. it's still tbd there aren't any um no women have been named to top or to any of the top political positions but we also don't really have most of the top political positions filled out yet so i think people are waiting and seeing on that and yeah. we are definitely hearing uh a lot more about like leaders on the Hill and others in Washington thinking it's important to to make sure there's mm-hmm. some women named to lead USDA. Helena, can you can you talk at all about the this like to summarize the stakes 
for the industry with the lack of sort of women present? Um, I think there's interesting parallels that can probably be drawn from the food industry side, because for whatever reason, the food industry side, especially leadership in Washington, is women dominated. And so, so what do you what do you attribute the difference to? And how do you just divide those two yeah, I think, between food and ag? Yeah. So the, the food industry would be companies like, you know, uh, the more the manufacturers. So General Mills or PepsiCo or Coca-Cola or companies like that that are more processing. And I I I don't know that I could really give you a good reason why there are so many more women on the food industry side and fewer on the ag industry, except for the like natural demographic um, like the demographics of agriculture, I think, then lend themselves to the agriculture leaders who are, you know, leading these organizations. And the food industry t- is bigger and I think tends to have more, um, I think it tends to have more urban business people involved. So it's just maybe more demographically diverse naturally. But and the, if you don't mind if I jump yeah. in, I was just thinking, you know, women are the ones doing like a lot of grocery shopping, mm-hmm. you know, for their home. So they maybe feel more connected to like brands and, and yes. the finished product. And that resonates maybe more with I them. I think there is something um, to that. Yeah. But, but it's interesting because so with all the change that's happening in food right now, like moms and shop, you know, dads and millennials are changing the types of foods that they're looking for at the grocery store. So the food industry is in this incredible moment of change. There's there is so much um, pressure to be more transparent or to have healthier food or to make all these changes. And it's interesting that we have women at the helm of all of these trade organizations in D.C., the one that represents the food manufacturers, the one that represents the restaurants, the one that represents the retailers. They're all led by women. So they're the ones sort of having to navigate how the industry goes forward with all of this flux. Um, and I think probably the agriculture industry is going to have to deal with that more and more down the line. And they are sort of getting involved, like with the GMO labeling fight, the consumers were sort of asking for mandatory GMO labels in certain states. And that was sort of dragging the agriculture um, industry more into like a direct um, conversation with consumers. So I think they're going to have to contend with the same sorts of issues the food industry is already dealing with just because they're closer to consumers. And a lot of those consumers, to your point, Catherine, tend to be moms shopping at grocery stores. So that's kind of who you have to think about when you're thinking about how to go forward as an industry. Yeah, yeah I have to Catherine. say that maybe one of the things that would be different if there were more women um, actually, you know, um, leaders in the agriculture industry that they might have a better uh, communication strategy. I just think ag in general has a tough time. They're increasingly getting better, but they have a tough time um, communicating with just every uh, just you know people who are disconnected from the farm because uh, only two percent of the population is directly involved in agriculture. So if you're gonna send a message uh, and you want a positive message about your industry, then you need to speak united, very clearly, send a positive signals to consumers. And the ag industry is really struggled with that and you know maybe women would understand that a little better or Mm -hmm. I think they might be more open to talking about it Mm -hmm. talking about agriculture promoting agriculture Mm -hmm. I don't know taking that risk that's up that's up for debate but that could be a potential it's an interesting question I think yeah Yeah. like Helena one one of the biggest figures in in food policy the food policy space in the last eight years prior to this year was Michelle Obama 
Um, she was a sort of outsized figure who you could attribute or blame for <laughs> various aspects of like what we now see, you know, restaurant labeling for calories and all that kind of stuff, which the Trump administration has agreed to push forward, right? Mm-hmm. You know, can you talk a little bit about her sort of her role in, in sort of shaping the place we're at right now with food policy? And second, Melania, I mean, she has been an interesting figure to watch on this. Um, how much has she taken up the the Obama mantle? I, th- I think it's an interesting question, like how how much of a lasting impact Michelle Obama has or hasn't had on food, and how much of that was um, how much of what she did on food was really enabled by like consumers being more interested, and how much of it was just her being ahead of the curve. Like it's always the you know the chicken or the egg. Um, like there are probably some people who think that Michelle Obama's interest in food policy might have been a little bit too early. Like maybe if she had come and talked about this later, there'd be even more consumer interest and acceptance because she did take some heat from particularly Republicans who felt like, A, it wasn't um, – they didn't really want a first lady to talk about policy and definitely not something like nutrition policy, which is very personal. And, of course, it immediately sparks the whole nanny state – you know, question. Um, but Michelle Obama, a lot of the policies she championed very carefully, you know, she didn't want to, she never wanted to be seen overtly policymaking, but we all know and have reported uh, that the East Wing was very involved in a lot of the different policymaking they did on school nutrition and calorie labeling, like you mentioned, and they're redoing all the nutrition facts panels on, on all the processed foods, you know, that you buy in the store. And for the most part, all of those changes they championed are actually sticking around. So, so far, the Trump administration, they've only done some relatively minor tweaks on on school nutrition standards, but menu labeling sticking around. They're moving forward with the nutrition facts labels. So as of right now, a lot of the, the things that she championed look like they will have a visible impact going forward. So how would you define Melania's role now? Um, is she, uh, do you see her dipping her toe in the water at all on policy, or is it a different type of, of role that she's I do not see out? her dipping her toe at all into policy, but if she were, that'd be a great story. So someone should <laughs> let us know if that's happening. But I haven't heard anything along that those lines, but super interesting that she, that she not only decided to keep the garden on the South the Lawn, but the White House um, garden. kitchen garden mm-hmm. that grows fruits and vegetables and herbs and... Uh, even has has honeybees. Yeah. And the bees are still going. Um, You know, she not only decided to keep the garden, but actually held a garden harvest event with with kids on the South Lawn, just like Michelle Obama did Mm -hmm. for years. And so it looks like it's going to be part of that tradition that continues on. And most people see the kitchen garden as a symbol. You know, it's it's not doesn't really change policy, but it might. It's kind of a, a way to educate kids or talk about food and where it comes from. And thinking about eating more fruits and vegetables. And Melania told everyone to eat their fruits and vegetables just like Michelle Obama mm-hmm. did. So it was interesting for me to watch that after having covering uh, after having covered Michelle Obama for so many years to hear like the same message coming out of the First Lady, but uh, have not seen any evidence of the policy side coming with it. I mean, it's hard to argue with, you know, eating your fruits and vegetables. But even so in this political environment, right, like, I think there's probably even a question – whether you would keep something seemingly as innocuous as a garden and talk about fruits and vegetables, given the carryover from the Obama well, and she, administration, and she to took the Trump some she took some flack on Twitter because 
what I saw is people either responded, that's so nice, Melania. You know, even people who aren't fans of her husband, the people were saying, I do not like your husband at all, but I really appreciate that you kept the garden. And then there was the other camp, which just said, of course you copied Michelle Obama on the garden (laughs) because you already plagiarized her speech. And so there were two distinct reactions But I think it is worth noting that before the Obamas left office, Michelle, like, they, like, kind of made more of the garden more permanent. They, they cemented it. put in place, it, yeah. like, a private funding source. So, like, like there's a lot more, like, concrete there, like, like physical concrete in the White House kitchen garden than there was during most of the Obama years. Just to wrap up, I'd love to go around the table and get, like, your one fun food fact that you would give us. And I have surprise looks from around the table. I'm putting them all like, on the spot. Good. Helena, your um, fun food fact that makes you go, wow. Uh, I'm always surprised by just how global things are. So I, I just feel like a lot of people don't know that, you know, 90% of our seafood's imported now. Um, half our fruits and vegetables at any given point. I think that's probably one of the, like, that's not, I'm not very funny. Like parties. It's, it's, yeah, a, good, it's a good fact. But People can take that for their Christmas uh, holiday dinner. Jenny, what about you? So uh, this is something that kind of over the past, I guess, four and a half years, Helena and I have always like marveled at like what there is a big lobby for, like what there is an association of and what there isn't. Like, like I will say the nut folks are pretty well covered. Like there's the peanut association and the almond growers and the... I think the pecan growers have a lobbyist too these days, but like there's no big broccoli, like there's no big Brussels sprouts. No big cilantro. There's no big cilantro, which killed Helena for like a month because she had a big cilantro story a couple of years ago. But like there's no, like, there's no one to call. There's no one to call when she wants. The herbs, the herb, the herb industry. And yes, I I pronounce the H because, yeah, that's a, anyway. (laughs) It's British. Yeah, it's a national preference, I guess. Um, But like they don't have a lobby really, but there is actually a relatively, like sometimes relatively strong fruits and vegetables lobby. And like lately we've seen a like regional fruits and vegetable lobby. Like the, Flor- the tomatoes are finding Florida their voice. Tomato yeah. growers all of a sudden are really, really powerful, but like there's no big broccoli. Yeah. And we just keep sometimes coming back to like what there is. You know, they isn't. needed a big broccoli association during George HW Bush's yes. presidency when he maligned broccoli over and over again. I do not like broccoli. <laughs> And I haven't liked it since I was a little kid. And my mother made me eat it. Broccoli is one of my favorite foods. They should so. have had rapid response to yes, that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Catherine, how about you? What's your fun fact that people can recite at their holiday dinners this December? Um, I think I've always found most – this isn't necessarily a, fa- a fact but or a statistic. But the fact that it's really, really challenging to study nutrition science. That always amazes me. Helena has told me this before. So to actually, you know, for decades, you, we finick around with like fat is the demon or salt is the demon or sugar is the demon. But it's really hard to study that because nobody is ever telling a doctor exactly what they ate for 24 hours. And we can remember mm-hmm. that. So to actually track those trends and figure out how it impacts people individually, it's really, really difficult. So I think that's why there's all these always shifting competing um, Reports. Competing reports. Mm-hmm. Nobody. It's really nutrition science is really confusing because studying it is very challenging. Um, so my advice to people is don't worry so much about. And I'm not a nutrition expert, but I think everybody's so focused on one individual ingredient, but it's really about the whole profile of a food. Mm. Um, but yeah. So the next time we see the study about wine being good or bad, 
<laughs> don't read too much into it, right? It yeah. usually says it's good, though. It usually says yeah. it's good. Mm-hmm. That's the trend these days. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stick to that. And dark chocolate, appar- dark chocolate is apparently up for debate now. Is it? <laughs> yeah, apparently the, all the science on dark chocolate was funded by, you know, the dark chocolate <laughs> industry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. I'm, do still, whole... I'm still going with dark chocolate. It's all good right, good. All right, great. Well, ladies, thank you so much. It was fun. Who knew that? There was such a women's angle to agriculture. Who knew? Now we know. We love it. Thanks. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks.